0: Section One of Letters of Mrs. Adams, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Letters of Mrs. Adams, Volume One by Charles Francis Adams. Section One Memoir of Her Life, Part One the years between 1744 and 1774. The memorials of that generation by whose efforts the independence of the United States was achieved are in great abundance. There is hardly an event of importance from the year 1765 to the date of the definitive treaty of peace with Great Britain in September 1783, which has not been recorded, either by the industry of actors upon the scene, or by the indefatigable activity of a succeeding class of students. These persons have devoted themselves, with a highly commendable zeal, to the investigation of all particulars, even the most minute, that relate to this interesting period. The individuals called to act most conspicuously in the Revolution have, many of them, left voluminous collections of papers, which as time passes find their way to the light of publication and furnish important illustrations of the feelings and motives under which the contest was carried on the actors are thus made to stand in bold relief before us we not only see the public record but the private commentary also and these taken in connection with the contemporaneous histories all of which however defective in philosophical analysis are invaluable depositories of facts related by living witnesses will serve to transmit to posterity the details for a narration in as complete a form as will in all probability ever be attained by the imperfect faculties of man admitting these observations to be true there is nevertheless a distinction to be drawn between the materials for a history of action and those for one of feeling, between the conduct of men aiming at distinction among their fellow beings and the private, familiar sentiments that run into the texture of the social system without remark or the hope of observation. Here it is that something like a void in our annals appears still to exist our history is for the most part wrapped up in the forms of office the great men of the revolution in the eyes of posterity are many of them like heroes of a mythological age they are seen for the most part when conscious that they are acting upon a theater where individual sentiment must be sometimes disguised and often sacrificed for the public good statesmen and generals rarely say all they think or feel the consequence is that in the papers which come from them they are made to assume a uniform of grave hue which though it doubtless exalts the opinion entertained of their perfections somewhat diminishes the interest with which later generations study their character students of human nature seek for examples of man under circumstances of difficulty and trial man as he is not as he would appear but there are many reasons why they are often baffled in the search we look for the workings of the heart when those of the head alone are presented to us we watch the emotions of the spirit and yet find clear traces only of the reasoning of the intellect the solitary meditation the confidential whisper to a friend never meant to reach the ear of the multitude the secret wishes not to be blazoned forth to catch applause the fluctuations between fear and hope that most betray the springs of action these are the guides to character which most frequently vanish with the moment that called them forth and leave nothing to posterity but the coarser elements for judgment that may be found in elaborated results there is moreover another distinction to be observed which is not infrequently lost sight of it is of great importance not only to understand the nature of the superiority of the individuals who have made themselves a name above their fellow beings but to estimate the degree in which the excellence for which they were distinguished was shared by those among whom they lived in attention to this duty might present patrick henry and james otis washington jefferson and samuel adams as the causes of the american revolution which they were not there was a moral principle in the field to the power of which a great majority of the whole population of the colonies whether male or female old or young had been long and habitually trained to do homage the individuals named with the rest of their celebrated associates who best represented that moral principle before the world were not the originators but the spokesmen of the general opinion and instruments for its adaptation to existing events whether fighting in the field or deliberating in the senate their strength against great britain was not that of numbers nor of wealth nor of genius but it drew its nourishment from the sentiment that pervaded the dwellings of the entire population how much this home sentiment did then and does ever depend upon the character of the female portion of the people will be too readily understood by all to require explanation the domestic hearth is the first of schools and the best of lecture rooms for there the heart will cooperate with the mind the affections with the reasoning power and this is the scene for the almost exclusive sway of the weaker sex yet great as the influence thus exercised undoubtedly is it escapes observation in such a manner that history rarely takes much account of it the maxims of religion faith hope and charity are not passed through the alembic of logical proof before they are admitted into the daily practice of women they go at once into the teachings of infancy and thus form the only high and pure motives of which matured manhood can in its subsequent action ever boast neither when the stamp of duty is to be struck in the young mind is there commonly so much alloy in the female heart as with men with which the genuine metal may be fused and the face of the coin made dim there is not so much room for the doctrines of expediency and the promptings of private interest to compromise the force of public example in every instance of domestic convulsions and when the pruning hook is deserted for the sword and musket the sacrifice of feelings made by the female sex is unmixed with a hope of worldly compensation with them there is no ambition to gratify no fame to be gained by the simply negative virtue of privation suffered in silence. There is no action to drown in its noise and bustle a full sense of the pain that must inevitably attend it. The lot of women in times of trouble is to be a passive spectator of events, which she can scarcely hope to make subservient to her own fame or to control. If it were possible to get at the expression of feelings by women, in the heart of a community at a moment of extraordinary trial, recorded in a shape evidently designed to be secret and confidential, this would seem to present the surest and most unfailing index to its general character. Hitherto we have not gathered much of this material in the United States. The dispersion of families so common in America, the consequent destruction of private papers, the defective nature of female education before the revolution the difficulty and danger of free communication and the engrossing character to the men of public and to the women of domestic cares have all contributed to cut short if not completely to destroy the sources of information it is truly remarked in the present volume that instances of patience perseverance Fortitude, magnanimity, courage, humanity, and tenderness, which would have graced the roman character, were known only to those who were themselves the actors and whose modesty could not suffer them to blazon abroad their own fame. The heroism of the females of the revolution has gone from memory with the generation that witnessed it, and nothing, absolutely nothing, remains upon the ear of the young of the present day but the faint echo of an expiring general tradition neither is there much remembrance of the domestic manners of the last century when with more of admitted distinctions than at present there was more of general equality nor of the state of social feeling or of that simplicity of intercourse which in colonial times constituted in new england as near an approach to the successful exemplification of the democratic theory as the irregularity in the natural gifts of men will in all probability ever practically allow it is the purpose of the present volume to contribute something to the supply of this deficiency by giving to tradition a form partially palpable the present is believed to be the first attempt in the united states to lay before the public a series of private letters written without the remotest idea of publication by a woman to her husband and others of her nearest and dearest relations their greatest value consists in the fact susceptible of no misconception that they furnish an exact transcript of the feelings of the writer in times of no ordinary trial independently of this the variety of scenes in which she wrote and the opportunities furnished for observation in the situations in which she was placed by the elevation of her husband to high official positions in the country may contribute to sustain the interest with which they will be read the undertaking is nevertheless too novel not to inspire the editor with some doubt of its success particularly as it brings forward to public notice a person who has now been long removed from the scene of action and of whom it is not unreasonable to suppose the present generation of readers have neither personal knowledge nor recollection for the sake of facilitating their progress and explaining the allusions to persons and objects very frequently occurring it may not be deemed improper here to premise some account of her life there were few persons of her day and generation who derived their origin or imbibed their character more exclusively from the genuine stock of the Massachusetts Puritan settlers than Abigail Smith, her father, the Rev. William Smith, was the settled minister of the Congregational Church at Weymouth for more than forty years and until his death. her mother, Elizabeth Quincy, was the granddaughter of the Rev. John Norton, long the pastor of a church of the same denomination in the neighboring town of Hingham and the nephew of John Norton, well known in the annals of the colony. Her maternal grandfather, John Quincy, was the grandson of Thomas Shepherd, minister of Charlestown, distinguished in his day, and the son of the more distinguished Thomas Shepherd of Cambridge, whose name still lives in one of the churches of that town. These are persons whose merits may be found fully recorded in the pages of Mather and of Neal, they were among the most noted of the most reputed class of their day. In a colony founded so exclusively upon motives of religious zeal, as Massachusetts was, it necessarily followed that the ordinary distinctions of society were in a great degree subverted, and that the leaders of the Church, though without worldly possessions to boast of, were the most in honor everywhere education was promoted only as it was subsidiary to the great end of studying or expounding the scriptures, and whatever of advance was made in the intellectual pursuits of society was rather the incidental than the direct result of studies necessary to fit men for a holy calling. Hence it was that the higher departments of knowledge were entered almost exclusively by the clergy classical learning was a natural though indirect consequence of the acquisition of those languages in which the new testament and the fathers were to be studied and dialectics formed the armor of which men were compelled to learn the use as a preparation for the wars of religious controversy the mastery of these gave power and authority to their possessors who by a very natural transition passed from being the guides of religious faith to their fellow men to be guardians of their education to them as the fountains of knowledge and possessing the gifts most prized in the community all other ranks in society cheerfully gave place if a festive entertainment was meditated the minister was sure to be first on the list of those to be invited if any assembly of citizens was held he must be there to open the business with prayer if a political measure was in agitation he was among the first whose opinion was to be consulted even the civil rights of the other citizens for a long time depended in some degree upon his good word and after this rigid rule was laid aside he yet continued in the absence of technical law and lawyers to be the arbiter and the judge in the differences between his fellow men. He was not infrequently the family physician. The great object of instruction being religious, the care of the young was also in his hands. The records of Harvard University, the child and darling of Puritan affections, show that of all the presiding officers during the century and a half of colonial days, but... Two were laymen and not ministers of the prevailing denomination and that of all who in the early times availed themselves of such advantages as this institution could then offer nearly half the number did so for the sake of devoting themselves to the service of the gospel but the prevailing notion of the purpose of education was attended with one remarkable consequence the cultivation of the female mind was regarded with utter indifference. It is not impossible that the early example of Mrs. Hutchinson, and the difficulties in which the public exercise of her gifts involved the colony, had established in the public mind a conviction of the danger that may attend the meddling of women with abstruse points of doctrine. And these, however they might confound the strongest intellect, were nevertheless the favorite topics of thought and discussion in that generation waving a decision upon this it may very safely be assumed not only that there was very little attention given to the education of women but that as mrs adams in one of her letters says it was fashionable to ridicule female learning the only chance for much intellectual improvement in the female sex was, therefore, to be found in the families of that which was the educated class, and in occasional intercourse with the learned of their day. Whatever of useful instruction was received in the practical conduct of life came from maternal lips, and what of further mental development depended more upon the eagerness with which the casual teachings of daily conversation were treasured up than upon any labor expended purposely to promote it. Abigail Smith was the second of three daughters. Her father, as has been already mentioned, was the minister of a small congregational church in the town of Weymouth during the middle of the last century. She was born in that town on the eleventh of November seventeen forty four old style. In her neighborhood, there were not many advantages of instruction to be found, and even in Boston, the small metropolis nearest at hand, For reasons already stated, the list of accomplishments within the reach of females was probably very short. She did not enjoy an opportunity to acquire even such as there might have been, for the delicate state of her health forbade the idea of sending her away from home to obtain them. In a letter, written in 1817, the year before her death, speaking of her own deficiencies, she says, My early education did not partake of the abundant opportunities which the present days offer and which even our common country schools now afford. I never was sent to any school. I was always sick. Female education in the best families went no further than writing and arithmetic, in some few and rare instances, music and dancing." hence it is not unreasonable to suppose that the knowledge gained by her was rather the result of the society into which she was thrown than of any elaborate instruction this fact that the author of the letters in the present volume never went to any school is a very important one to the proper estimate of her character FOR WHATEVER MAY BE THE DECISION OF THE LONG VEXED QUESTION BETWEEN THE ADVANTAGES OF PUBLIC AND THOSE OF PRIVATE EDUCATION, FEW PERSONS WILL DENY THAT THEY PRODUCE MARKED DIFFERENCES IN THE FORMATION OF CHARACTER. SECLUSION FROM COMPANIONS OF THE SAME AGE AT ANY TIME OF LIFE IS CALCULATED TO DEVELOP THE IMAGINATIVE FACULTY AT THE EXPENSE OF THE JUDGMENT, BUT ESPECIALLY IN YOUTH WHEN THE MOST DURABLE IMPRESSIONS ARE MAKING the ordinary consequence in females of a meditative turn of mind is the indulgence of romantic and exaggerated sentiments drawn from books which if subjected to the ordinary routine of large schools are worn down by the attrition of social intercourse these ideas formed in solitude in early life often though not always remain in the mind even after the realities of the world surround those who hold them and counteract the tendency of their conclusions they are constantly visible in the letters of these volumes even in the midst of the severest trials they form what may be considered the romantic turn of the author's mind but in her case they were so far modified by a great admixture of religious principle and by natural good sense as to be of eminent service in sustaining her through the painful situations in which she was placed instead of nursing that species of sickly sensibility which too frequently in similar circumstances impairs if it does not destroy the power of practical usefulness at mount wollaston a part of braintree the town next adjoining weymouth lived colonel john quincy her grandfather on the mother's side and a gentleman who for many years enjoyed in various official situations much of the confidence of the colony at his house and under the instruction of his wife her grandmother she appears to have imbibed most of the lessons which made the deepest impression upon her mind of this lady the daughter of the reverend john norton nothing is now known but what the frequent and cheerful acknowledgment of her merit by her disciple tells us i have not forgotten says the latter to her own daughter in the year seventeen ninety five the excellent lessons which i received from my grandmother at a very early period of life i frequently think they made a more durable impression upon my mind than those which i received from my own parents whether it was owing to the happy method of mixing instruction and amusement together or from an inflexible adherence to certain principles the utility of which i could not but see and approve when a child i know not but maturer years have rendered them oracles of wisdom to me i love and revere her memory her lively cheerful disposition animated all around her whilst she edified all by her unaffected piety. This tribute is due to the memory of those virtues, the sweet remembrance of which will flourish, though she has long slept with her ancestors. Again, in another letter to the same person in 1808, she says, I cherish her memory with holy veneration, whose maxims I have treasured up, whose virtues live in my remembrance, happy if i could say they have been transplanted into my life but though her early years were spent in a spot of so great seclusion as her grandfather's house must then have been it does not appear that she remained wholly unacquainted with young persons of her own sex and age she had relations and connections both on the father's and on the mother's side and with these she was upon as intimate terms as circumstances would allow the distance between the homes of the young people was however too great and the means of their parents too narrow to admit of very frequent personal intercourse the substitute for which was a rapid interchange of written communications the letter writing propensity manifested itself early in this youthful circle a considerable number of the epistles of her correspondence have been preserved among the papers of mrs adams they are deserving of notice only as they furnish a general idea of the tastes and pursuits of the young women of that day. Perhaps the most remarkable thing about them is the evident influence upon the writers which the study of the spectator and of the poets appears to have had. This is perceptible in the more important train of thought and structure of language, as well as in the lesser trifles of the taste for quotation and for fictitious signatures calliope and myra Arpasia and aurelia have effectually succeeded in disguising their true names from the eyes of younger generations the signature of miss smith appears to have been diana a name which she dropped after her marriage without losing the fancy that prompted to its selection HER LETTERS DURING THE REVOLUTION SHOW CLEARLY ENOUGH THE tendency OF HER OWN THOUGHTS AND FEELINGS IN THE SUBSTITUTE SHE THEN ADOPTED OF PORTIA. HER FONDNESS FOR QUOTATIONS, THE FASHION OF THAT DAY, IT WILL BE SEEN, WAS MAINTAINED THROUGH LIFE. PERHAPS THERE IS NO SPECIES OF EXERCISE IN EARLY LIFE MORE PRODUCTIVE OF RESULTS USEFUL TO THE MIND THAN THAT OF WRITING LETTERS. OVER AND ABOVE THE MECHANICAL FACILITY OF CONSTRUCTING SENTENCES, WHICH NO TEACHING WILL AFFORD SO WELL, THE INTEREST WITH WHICH THE OBJECT IS COMMONLY PURSUED GIVES AN EXTRAORDINARY IMPULSE TO THE INTELLECT. THIS IS PROMOTED IN A DEGREE PROPORTIONATE TO THE SCARCITY OF TEMPORARY AND LOCAL SUBJECTS FOR DISCUSSION. WHERE THERE IS LITTLE GOSSIP, THE WANT OF IT MUST BE SUPPLIED FROM BOOKS the flowers of literature spring up where the weeds of scandal take no root the young ladies of massachusetts in the last century were certainly readers even though only self-taught and their taste was not for the feeble and nerveless sentiment or the frantic passion which comes from the novels and romances in the circulating library of our day but was derived from the deepest wells of english literature the poets and moralists of the mother country furnished to these inquiring minds their ample stores and they were used to an extent which it is at least doubtful if the more pretending and elaborate instruction of the present generation would equal of mrs adams's letters during this period of her youth but very few remain in possession of her descendants one specimen has been accidentally obtained which makes the first in the present publication the writer was at the date of the letter not quite seventeen and was addressing a lady some years older than herself this may account for a strain of gravity rather beyond her years or ordinary disposition two other letters written to mr adams after she was betrothed and before she was married to him have been added because they are believed to be more indicative of her usual temper at that age these have been admitted to a place in the selection not so much as claiming a particular merit as because they are thought to furnish a standard of her mind and general character when a girl by which the improvement and full development of her powers as a woman may readily be measured the father of mrs adams was a pious man with something of that vein of humor not uncommon among the clergy of New England, which ordinarily found such a field for exercise as is displayed in the pages of Cotton Mather. He was the father of three daughters, all of them women of uncommon force of intellect, though the fortunes of two of them confined its influence to a sphere much more limited than that which fell to the lot of Mrs. Adams.' mary the eldest was married in seventeen sixty two to richard cranch an english emigrant who had settled at germantown a part of braintree and who subsequently became a judge of the court of common pleas in massachusetts and died highly respected in the early part of the present century the present william cranch of washington who has presided so long and with so much dignity and fidelity over the circuit court of the district of columbia is the son of this marriage. Elizabeth, the youngest, was twice married, first to the Reverend John Shaw, Minister of Haverhill in Massachusetts, and after his death to the Reverend Mr. Peabody of Atkinson, New Hampshire. Thus much is necessary to be stated in order to explain the relations which the parties in many of the letters bore to each other. It is an anecdote told of Mr. Smith, that upon the marriage of his eldest daughter he preached to his people from the text of the forty-second verse of the tenth chapter of luke and mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her two years elapsed and his second daughter the subject of this notice was about to marry john adams then a lawyer in good practice when some disapprobation of the match appears to have manifested itself among a portion of his parishioners the profession of law was for a long period in the colonial history of massachusetts unknown and after circumstances called it forth the prejudices of the inhabitants who thought it a calling hardly honest were arrayed against those who adopted it there are many still living who can remember how strong they remained even down to the time of the adoption of the present federal constitution and the records of the general court at its very last session of 1840, will show that they have not quite disappeared at this day. Besides this, the family of Mr. Adams, the son of a small farmer of the middle class in Braintree, was thought scarcely good enough to match with the minister's daughter, descended from so many of the shining lights of the colony. It is probable that Mr. Smith was made aware of the opinions expressed among his people, for he is said immediately after the marriage took place to have replied to them by a sermon, the text of which, in evident allusion to the objection against lawyers, was drawn from Luke chapter 7 verse 33, for John came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say, he hath a devil. Mrs. Adams was married on the 25th of October, 1764 having then nearly completed her 20th year. The 10 years immediately following present little that is worthy of recording. She appears to have passed a quiet and apparently very happy life, having her residence in Braintree or in Boston, according as the state of her husband's health, then rather impaired, or that of his professional practice made the change advisable. Within this period she became the mother of a daughter and of three sons, whose names will frequently appear in her letters, and her domestic cares were relieved by the presence of her husband, who was absent from home only upon those occasions when he, with the other lawyers of his time, was compelled to follow the court in its circuits. During these times he used to write regularly to his wife an account of his adventures and of his professional success, These letters remain and furnish a curious record of the manners and customs of the provincial times. She does not appear to have often replied to them. The only example is given in the present volume and makes the fourth of the selection, a letter remarkable only for the picture it presents of peaceful domestic life, in contrast to the stormy period immediately succeeding." End of section 1.